0: Turn in your Bibles to Mark 10, 32 through 45. Now they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was going before them, and they were amazed. And as they followed, they were afraid. Then he took the 12 aside again, began to tell things that would happen to him. Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and to the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and scourge him and spit on him and kill him. And the third day he will rise again. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to him, saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us that we may sit, one on your right hand, and the other on your left, in your glory. But Jesus said to them, You do not know what you ask. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, We are able. So Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink the cup that I drink, and with the baptism I am baptized with, you will be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left is not mine to give. But it is for those for whom it is prepared. And when the ten heard it, they began to be greatly displeased with James and John. But Jesus called them to himself and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Yet it shall not be so among you. But whoever desires to become great among you shall be your servant." And whoever of you desires to be first shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life a ransom for many.
1: Well, this morning I hope you'll keep your Bibles open there to the Gospel of Mark chapter 10. We're going to look at that together, work our way through this incredible passage. Last week, as we spent a time just a little bit earlier in Mark chapter 10, we compared the disposition of children, the disposition of need and dependence, with the disposition of a rich young man, a man who was self-righteous and self-sufficient. In this morning's passage, as we see what the gospel author, Mark, the Spirit has preserved for us here, we compare a confident, self-sacrificing purposeful Lord with a grasping, self-elevating set of disciples. Friends, when I listen to that, I when I look at that comparison, I look at a comparison between the Lord and myself, the Lord and his people. This is what we're like. We are grasping, we're self-elevating, we are concerned for selves. Our pride uh, is often our... our, our um, uh, 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 is prickly. Our, our pride is easily touched by the affront of others and our position in this world without the confidence that the Lord clearly shows in our passage this morning. While Jesus is talking about going to Jerusalem to die, under the abuse of power, the disciples are simultaneously amazed and afraid and grasping for some sense of power. In order to lord it over others. Do you see the comparison that's in our passage this morning? So what does Jesus do? In response, Jesus, who has highlighted a few areas of faithfulness in our recent passages, areas of faithfulness such as marriage, he's addressed wealth. In our passage today, he addresses, he reminds us that, that part of our discipleship, part of our followership. What it means to follow after the Christ is to follow Jesus on the road of suffering and a particular kind of road of suffering, a road of self-giving love. Let's pray together. Only Father, I thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the, the, the power and the poetry of your gospel this morning. Thank you for your spirit's work that can weave this incredible story and all of its details into our lives. We trust you that you would do this work this morning. You would confront us, that we would see ourselves in James and John. That we would see ourselves in, in grasping and in fear. That we would see our need for this Christ and see the beauty, the amazing nature of your grace self giving love toward us, Lord, we pray for your work in the midst of the congregation and even as we go from this place to walk in what you have so beautifully laid out before us this morning, we pray for this in the name of Jesus amen so let 's do it let 's begin by looking at Jesus this morning we 're going to begin by giving attention. To the Christ, Jesus, and his gospel. And that's an important little phrase. I've mentioned it to you a few times recently, not because I made it up, Christ and his gospel, but because this is what Jesus presents. He tells us, whoever uh, loses his life for my sake and my gospel, right? These two ideas. There's something about Christ, and there's something about his news, his work, his grace, we're going to give attention to Christ and his gospel. And then we're going to turn to the ongoing mistaken mindset of the disciples. And it's going to serve to tutor us this morning. Now, in rebuking and teaching the disciples in our passage today, Jesus is coming to us, right? We as his disciples. And he's going to press upon us the power and the glory, the mercy and grace, the love and service of his gospel way, the way of his kingdom this morning. There's an idea that's at the heart of our passage this morning, an idea that there is something that Jesus has to press upon our hearts as disciples in the here and now. Here's how commentator James Edwards, who has been so helpful to us in our time in the gospel of Mark, puts it. The reason why a servant is the most preeminent position In the kingdom of God. Is that the sole function of the servant is to give. And giving is the essence of our God. Now that sounds like a wonderful little Hallmark card, doesn't it? It sounds like a wonderful little thing about the essence of our God. Such a giving God. Such a nice God. Such a kind God. Always looking out for his people, right? That's not what we get presented to us in our passage this morning. This is not a sentiment. This is not, as the commentators this week, as I paid attention there, they point out, it's not a new morality. It's not a sentiment. It's not a set of values. It is the way of the king. This isn't a law that's being laid on the people. This is the performance of the king himself. And if you watch a king you find out what is valued and good and precious about the king's kingdom. This isn't a sentiment. This isn't a set of morals or values. This is the king himself. From creation to redemption, the work of the Lord toward us is generosity. We reflected on it many, many weeks ago. The very fact that we exist, that we have being at all, is an act of generosity. That we are is grace. And then that we can know him and be reconciled to our maker, walk in a a genuine knowledge of our God, is generosity. The generosity of the Lord is how he makes his love known to us. The love of the Lord is a self-giving love. What does that mean? It means that what the Lord gives is the Lord. It's not just self-sacrificial in order to get us something else. Like you sacrifice money in order to give someone a gift. No, when the Lord gives himself, what the Lord is giving is himself. And so when the Lord gives grace, what do we receive? We receive fellowship with the Lord who has loved us. Friends, this is why the the greatest commandment is such a good commandment. It tells us something about our God and what it is to take hold of the way that he is. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. It turns out this morning's teaching is not one of the value statements of the way of the kingdom. It is central to the nature of the kingdom of God. The Lord Jesus is perfect. In his fulfillment of these two commands, to love the Lord and to love his neighbor. And his perfection not only is a means by which we are reconciled to God, but he also becomes for us a perfect example of the way of the king's kingdom. We, we aren't just reconciled to God, we're reconciled to his way and brought into it. To participate is, as, as genuine partakers and participants in the king's kingdom to follow after the Lord by faith is to confess that the way of the Christ's self-giving love is good. I'm going to say that again because I think it's a definition of faith. It's a, it's, it's a definition of an essential aspect of faith that we can, we can kind of miss. We think of faith as simply a, a belief, an assent that something is true. But faith calls us to put our trust in it, that it's true in such a way that it's good. The way, faith is to confess that the way of Christ's self-giving love is a good way. And so we adopt it, because it's a good way, as our way. Because we want to walk in a good way. We walk in the way of self-giving love, not simply as a dutiful obedience to a command by a God to whom we have been reconciled, but as a people who have come to treasure and delight in grace. We're not just recipients of grace. We are those who have come to delight in grace. If faith declares that grace is good for us to receive, then surely genuine faith also declares that grace is good for us to if That's what faith is. We believe grace is good. And if it's good for the Lord, it's good for his people. It's this very mindset that's held forth for us in Philippians chapter 2. I encourage you. In this passage, this passage is being reflected upon in Philippians chapter 2. And here's how it goes. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Which mind? The mind of the Lord. You hear it, right? If you've partaken in... In the comfort and love of Christ, participate in the way of Christ. He goes on Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility co- count others as more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you not look to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours. Remember, what is grace but self-giving love? Christ has given us his love. It's yours in Christ who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross. That is what is presented for us in Mark chapter 10. And Jesus knows it. He's declaring it. He's telling them that the Son of Man, who has been born, taken on flesh, walks in obedience to the Father, is going to give his life. This is your mind. This is your mind, church, In Christ, the beauty of the word which speaks with a united voice of the Spirit of God. Truly, this is the Spirit of Christ speaking to us in both texts. Now let's open our passage this morning and see how that mind of Christ plays itself out in our passage. We begin verse 32. They're on a road, right? They're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is walking ahead of them. And they're amazed. Now, they're on this road from Jericho to Jerusalem. Jerusalem is about 20 miles away from Jericho or 3,500 feet up from Jericho to Jerusalem. It's appropriate that our passage says that they're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus is making a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the feast with the saints. What a powerful image. Christ is gathering to worship as a worshiper. He's coming in the flesh, fulfilling all righteousness to gather into Jerusalem with all the saints to worship the Lord. But now, as we've reflected on already together, how are all of these sinners, we just called them saints. We know the truth. We find out the truth of two of them right here on the road Right? We know the truth. These are sinners. How do sinners gather and approach a holy God but through the redeeming sacrifice of what Jesus is about to perform in the city to which they are all gathering? That's amazing. Jesus, the fellow worshiper, gathering himself with many pilgrims in the midst of the congregation in Jerusalem. That's the the image that we have for us as they're making their way up to Jerusalem. It's also the mean by, means by which any worship becomes acceptable to God. We have, in our passage today, the means by which we gather. This morning. It's one of my favorite thoughts. It's a repeated thought in the call to worship. That there's, there's a way in which we gather. We heap all kinds of other ways. We're, we're late. We're late again. We can't gather. We're late We bickered. We argued this morning. We can't gather. I know what I was like this week. I shouldn't gather. I'm tired this morning. I'm not ready. And you're right. Across the board. But we don't gather by any of those means. We gather because the Lord is at the head. He's in the front. And he went up to Jerusalem. And he prepared the way by which anyone would come. And so we come. We come in humility. We come humbled by his grace. And we come to remember his grace and to celebrate his grace, to receive his grace, and we go to make his grace known. In verse 32, we're told that Jesus was walking, and we're given this little bit of information ahead of them. He's walking ahead of them. The images of the Lord is with a clear-minded clear, clear minded, purposefulness to accomplish in perfect obedience to the Father the purpose of his coming. He must go up to Jerusalem. And he's going there to give his life as a ransom for many. Isaiah presents the suffering servant in this way in Isaiah 50 verse 7. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I shall not be put to shame. He's going up to Jerusalem to do a shame-filled activity, to be crucified on a cross of shame. But he's confident to do it because he knows he goes there to accomplish the purposes of the Lord God. Jesus appears here more like the master than ever going up to Jerusalem to be crucified. It's appropriate. That he would stand up and lead the people up to Jerusalem because the first is the one who gives his life away. He's going up to Jerusalem as the master because he goes up to Jerusalem as the servant. That's the whole point of our passage this morning, isn't it? Jesus shows himself to be the true master, the true Lord by setting himself up in the way of the servant and then walking in it. Jesus here physically depicts that the first is the one who leads the way on the road of suffering. But we would do well to remember that while his road travels through suffering, it doesn't end in suffering. It's not the end point. The end point is glory. The end point is resurrection. The end point is eternal life. When we gather together on on Sunday morning, we gather not As a people of suffering, but people who remember the resurrection of our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's where we're going. That is the end. That's what we hold in our minds when we remember Jesus who walks through suffering to glory. We do well to remember, to look to Jesus in Hebrews 12, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. He looks to glory and walks right through the suffering like flint, set on where he's going. Love is a self-giving service that also holds in view the joy and glory of the kingdom of heaven. We know the suffering is there, We know the hardship, the sacrifice. We know that to be a servant means to serve, like actually. To be self-giving means to give. To be humble means to be made low. We know that, and we know the joy and glory of the kingdom of heaven that the great master servant has secured for the people who follow after him. A willingness to walk on the road of sacrificial suffering is enabled by looking ahead with joy to the glory that's secured by the sacrifice of Christ. Now, unfortunately, the disciples don't yet see Christ in this way throughout our passage. Beginning in verse 32, we see that they are amazed and those who followed were afraid. They're not emboldened, By Jesus' leading, they're afraid. Jesus is making a pilgrimage to the Passover festival in Jerusalem. But all who are with him, from his disciples and all the other followers that are in the train of those who are gathering into Jerusalem, know this is a dangerous and ominous pilgrimage. If you're going to follow Jesus into that city, this is a dangerous thing. They know the political controversy. They know the religious controversy. And and all of Jesus' claims have stirred these things up. They know what they're walking into. They know that there's powerful people who are waiting in Jerusalem to set themselves to the purpose of destroying Jesus and anyone who would follow him to Jerusalem. And they're scared. They're afraid. And then what did James and John do? As a people who are afraid, who are scared and amazed, James and John sees an opportunity because they know this is a do or die moment. They're going to follow Jesus, but they know what's coming. Something's going down and they're going to be at risk to be there with Jesus. They might as well carve out a place for themselves if things go Jesus's way. I mean, these guys are smart. And what they're doing here is a well-politically calculated move. I applaud them in their worldliness. (laughs) They're going up to Jerusalem. If we're going to die, we're going to fight a battle, you might as well align yourself with a commander. And if he happens to win, if this goes well, maybe there's a seat for you. And so they're going up to Jerusalem. Jesus takes note of the fear of his disciples, calls the 12 aside and begins to teach them, verse 33, saying, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes and they will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They're gonna mock him, spit on him, flog him, kill him. And after three days, he will rise. From Mark 9 onward, the road of Jesus has a single destination. This is the third time we've seen it. Jesus is bound for Jerusalem, and he's going to perform an atoning work there, a reconciling work. This is his third clear statement of what he's going to do. Jesus makes this clear statement about his purpose in Jerusalem, and there's no way for the hearer of the gospel of Mark to misunderstand that somehow Jesus got caught up in a controversy and got himself killed. Mark wants to dispel any rumor that Jesus got caught. The cross is not an interruption to the ministry of Jesus. The cross and the redemption that he secured there are the destination of Jesus' pilgrimage. It's where Jesus is going. Jesus announces many things throughout the Gospel of Mark. He holds up as beautiful and good many aspects of the good news. But there is a single Central work of Jesus that secures a kingdom for the kingdom people. And that is the work that Jesus declares here now for the third time. Friends, there should be no mistake in our mind. If someone asks you, What is the gospel? What is the good news? Jesus has told us for a third time what is at the center of the good news. If somewhere in there you don't talk about the suffering and cross of our Savior, And the hope of his resurrection, you have not yet described the good news. Jesus is so clear. And he he puts it in this fourfold scheme over and over. Delivered and condemned, suffer, die, rise. Let us remember that Jesus' previous two statements, each building up and growing uh, in their clarity, we can go back and and read them from Mark chapter 8, verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, be killed, and after the third day, rise again. Mark chapter 9, verse 31. Isn't that handy? The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and when he is killed, after three days, he will rise, delivered, suffering, and killed rising. These are the elements that are presented. Rejection and deliverance, suffering, death, and resurrection. Each of these statements, the disciples respond to Jesus. Each time, all three times, Jesus makes this clear proclamation of his purpose in going to Jerusalem. In Mark 8, Peter rebukes Jesus. Lord, Master, let me tell you what you should do. In Mark 9, the disciples begin to argue. Right after Jesus declares his intent to give his life for them, they argue who is the greatest. And then here in Mark, Mark 10, James and John jump right to the front of the line. Let's consider what is the gospel. In this morning's passage, Jesus is explicit about where he's going. The disciples and the others who are following him are upset about how dangerous the journey is. They're amazed and all the others are afraid. In each case, the disciples haven't yet grasped the atoning purpose of the Christ that was made known in the Scriptures and that Jesus is now performing for him. It would appear that in today's passage, James and John and the others, they again misunderstand Jesus. And somehow, they interpret what he's doing politically as some sort of revolution, and they want to make sure that they have some sort of, sort of place in the revolution to the right and left of Jesus. Now, make no mistake. They know that Jesus is Messiah. They know he's the anointed one. They know he's a king. And they just want a place in the court. They want to establish themselves in significant positions. I mean, can you blame them? They're seeking to carve themselves out some privileged space. But they didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. They don't understand the sacrificial work that is central to the nature of the kingdom of the Messiah and what it requires for him to secure the kingdom for themselves and for all who would be a part of the kingdom of God. I wonder today, do we make the same mistake? And when I say today, I don't just mean every day. I mean like the particular moment in which we find ourselves today. Are we still looking for some political savior? I mean, really, I think that we need to ask this question. I'd love for that question to to leak out into our conversations during the course of the week. Are we looking for a political savior? Are we still looking for God to send a man? Now, we couch it in God talk, but we're still looking for God to send a man to take the reins of a political kingdom so that we can set our little group up as the winning team. You see, we were all lined up behind your purposes, God. Can we sit on the right and the left and be aligned with your political revolution? Politics become the new religion. There's a a vehemence to political discourse today that is, I want to say, near religious. It's not even near religious anymore. I want to tell you something today. There is no political Savior coming. There's no man or woman coming that you can vote for, that you can organize behind, and bring to power that can heal what ails us. Now, there is a man, and he's coming, but you're not going to vote for him. He's coming, and his name is Jesus. He's the God-man, And he has secured redemption. And when he comes, not a single government in this world will be left standing at the day of his coming. Not one of our party affiliations, no matter what good cultural endeavor they may be involved in, not one will be judged to be on the right side of history. A Mighty Fortress is Our God, written by Martin Luther, puts it, reorients us where we ought to sit down. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be losing. We're not the right man on our side, the man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is he, the Lord of hosts, his name from age to age The same, he must win the battle. History has a singular focus. and It's the glory of the Lord. And what do we await? The day of the Lord. That's why we say it after communion. After we remember the means by which we are reconciled and brought into his kingdom. Lord, come quickly. Lord, that's our vote. That's our faith. That's our confidence. Lord, come quickly. That Mark records for us a mistaken vision of James and John is a gift to us. It's a warning. It's also a gift. We would do well to listen carefully this morning to the sons of Zebedee, James and John. They make this request. You can see it. Verse 36 In verse 36, they come to him, we want you to do whatever we ask you to do, right? (laughs) Well, there's a request for you. We'd like to turn you into a genie, rub you once, and get the request. James and John, they begin by asking this request without making the actual request known, and it's interesting what Jesus' response is. It's actually the same exact words that Jesus says to Bartimaeus, the blind man, in the next passage that we will look up next week. What do you want for me to do? And Jesus' disposition to those who come to him and ask of him is, tell me, I'm listening. That's kind. There's a generosity already in the response of Jesus, but there's a difference between Bartimaeus' request and the sons of Zebedee, James and John's request. Bartimaeus comes in faith. James and John, they come in pride. Pride. Their request, verse 37, when they finally make it known, grant us to sit one on your right hand and one at your left in your glory. Now that's an audacious request. The brothers seem to want to skip over the suffering and simply enter glory. They want some sort of confidence that this ends with them in power and glory next to Jesus. There's no faith to follow after the explicit way of Jesus. Jesus has already told them where he's going. They're saying, well, we want to be on your right and left. He says, well, but I've told you where I was going explicitly for a third time. I'm going to be rejected. I'm I'm going to suffer and be spat upon, and they're going to kill me. Then I'm going to rise. If you want to be on my right and left, come along. Come along. You see, we don't create the promises of God there's a disposition in us that we do this. We think that we can create the promises of God, that we can make demands upon God, but that's not the way it works. No, we receive the promises of God. He reveals to us what is true, and we receive it by faith, and our hope is only in what is revealed to us. Now, if we would only have eyes to see the goodness and the glory of a Christ that he's revealed here and trust in him in what we don't yet understand, He's already has them following him. And he's simply saying, follow after me. Do you not trust me where I'm going? Do you not trust me in what you don't understand? Do you know what you're asking? He asks them. Don't you understand what this means? You don't know what you're asking. He says in verse 38, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism that I have with which I am baptized? We are able, they say. Oh, you will. You will. The cup ind- indicates something that's ordained by God. Jesus in his humanity isn't choosing his own venture." Jesus in his humanity is walking along a path that the Godhead has ordained for the Son of Man to walk. Look at it. Each of the three times he declares his purpose to go up to Jerusalem. He says it's the purpose of the Son of Man. The one who is under the will of the Godhead is going to walk in the cup that the Godhead has prepared for him to drink. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit has determined to pour a drink, And his drinking as the Son of Man is obedience to empty the cup that has been ordained for him. And in verse 39, he says, you're going to drink too, James, John. There is a way. What is he saying? Neither James nor John are the Christ. They can't do what the Christ is going to do. But there is a cup that is divinely appointed for them. There is a path in which they will walk. We are God's workmanship. And we are created in Christ Jesus for good works prepared in advance for us to do. Oh, we love that passage, don't we? Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We're, gonna, we're prepared for good works. What kind of good works was our master prepared for? Suffering. Rejection. Death. It's still a good verse. It still has all the power it used to have. It's just been reconfigured a little bit, hasn't it? There is a cup for you. There are good works for you, James and John and church. They just aren't what we would demand of him. But they are good. Because if the way of our Savior is a way of grace, the way that we are to walk in is a way that is good, A way that is grace. There's a cup for us to drink. We don't know what the Lord has prepared. We only know that the Lord has gone before us. And our business is to follow in the way of his kingdom. There is a way that has been made clear to us. We don't know the details of the activity. But we know the nature of the way. And that way is marked by faith and self-giving love. Period. And we get to walk in it. That's the good work that we have been prepared for, a way of faith and self-giving love. Now, when the disciples hear about what James and John did, look at verse 41. I love this. It's so human. The ten heard of it, and they began to be indignant at James and John. Could you imagine when Peter found out what James and John did without him? I, I think, and the commentators would agree with me, that Peter is the one who is recounting this particular passage to Mark. That's why there's so much detail in it. He remembers. He remembers. Now compare Jesus' anger with the disciples' anger. Just last week, Jesus was indignant. Mark chapter 10, verse 14. When they saw, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant. When the disciples were preventing the children from coming to him, Jesus was indignant. Let the children come to me. Don't hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom. What makes Jesus angry is when faith is hindered. And what makes us angry is when pride is wounded. There's a diagnostic in there for us. Sin scrapes and claws, it fits and it rages to secure some place in this world for ourselves. And when we find ourselves wounded in trying to secure a place in this world for ourselves, it's diagnostic. We have a pride problem. But the way of faith trusts the Lord in each moment that he's prepared a way for us to walk. He's secured for us an eternal inheritance in the heavenly places, and we don't have cause for indignation. Our pride cannot be wounded because our glory is securely kept for us in God. That's a secure place to live. That's where Jesus is walking like flint set on Jerusalem. Let's consider the great ones. Look at Mark chapter 10 verses 42 through 44. Jesus called them to himself and he says, you know, that those who are considered rulers over the Gentiles lorded over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And if you didn't get that, whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus couldn't have put this in more drastic terms. The one fitted for the kingdom is the one who takes on the the disposition and the position of the one who is radically least in the world. The servant and the slave. And then he clears up any question in the matter. And whom are we to serve? And he couldn't have chosen a more inclusive word. All. A slave, very bottom, of everyone. Jesus has been pressing this teaching upon the disciples for chapters now, all along the journey from the first moment he revealed them to them his sacrificial purpose. He's been telling them this singular idea. I want to go back and just remember him very quickly. Mark chapter 8 verse 35, Jesus calls the crowds to him and he says, whoever would save his life will lose it, but well, whoever would lose his life for my sake in the Gospels, right, will save it. Mark 9, 35, along the road, the disciples are bickering about who's greatest among them. And Jesus says, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He then points out that they should receive even the least in the community, even the child in Jesus' name and for his sake. Then Mark 9, 40 and 41, where disciples are unable to cast out a demon, the man who was not among them was able to cast out the demon. Jesus says, for the one who is not against us is for us. For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward, taking up the place of a servant. The word is for servant in our passage this morning is doulos. And doulos is a word that indicates one who is a, ser- a table servant. You bring water to someone and you won't lose your reward. Mark 10, verse 15, Jesus rebukes the disciples for preventing the children to coming to him. And he says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom is like a child, shall not enter it. And then in verse 31 of chapter 10, the disciples, they're bewildered at the prestigious, rich, young man who appears to be unfit for the kingdom of God. I mean, if the rich young man isn't fit, who is fit? Jesus concludes his continued instruction of the disciples in this way, but many who are first will be last, and the last first. And all the while, Jesus has been interspersing these experiences with the disciples, these explicit teachings that he keeps pulling them aside to give to them with the direct teaching of the sacrificial purpose of the Son of Man. You see, he's not teaching them. He's walking in front of them, and then we have Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The very theme verse that's at the center of the book of Mark. Here at the conclusion of our passage, Jesus comes to one of the clearest statements and yet the humblest, most sacrificial nature of his purpose. For even the Son of Man, the one sent by the Lord, even the Son of Man cannot came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus the Lord is the great servant, and his service could not be put any more clearly. His service is redemption. You know, I thank God this morning for many things in our passage. One of the things that is chief among them is that among the followers for whom Jesus would give his life as a ransom, he's going to give his life for these disciples. Among them are those who formally thought themselves first in the ways of the world. That's an encouragement to me. That means that sinful, prideful, no way at all into the kingdom according to the flesh. People like you and like me have been brought into the kingdom by the redemptive purpose of our God. There's hope for the arrogant and the prideful. If you feel crushed this morning, it's because you're paying attention. It's because you read and heard what the word has to say for us. In and of ourselves, we are crushed and without hope. But if you have, if you see the grace of this passage, you know the hope that we have in Christ. In rebuking and teaching the disciples in our passage today, Jesus is coming to us. This morning, a people without hope, and he's pressing upon us the power and the glory, the mercy and the grace, the love and self-giving service of his gospel toward us today. Do you hear the word love? The self-giving love to prideful, arrogant John and James. To follow after the Lord by faith is to confess that the way of the Christ's self-giving love is good. To come to the least, grasping People like James and John is love. And it's good. It's to confess that his way is not our way, that we're sinners and rebels on our own, that by grace we have been forgiven and transformed and so adopted into a way that isn't our own. Not an improvement on our former efforts, but to cast off our former efforts and take hold of his way we walk in a self-giving love not as a dutiful obedience to a great command not to a conformity to a new moral law but as a people who have come to treasure and delight in grace that's the call this morning do you love the way of the master does it sound good like good news what jesus has done And so if you come to love the way of the Master, if faith declares that grace is good for us to receive, then surely genuine faith declares that grace is good for us to give. Because we love the way of the one who has redeemed us. Lord God, I pray that you would press upon us your grace, our need, I mean, Peter, James, and John. We we know that the rich aren't going to make it into the kingdom. But Peter and James and John, they were the closest to you. We want to be like them. We want to be like the apostles. We want to be like the good Christians. Peter rebuked you. James and John, grasping in pride. God, the, the best among us have not entered by something we've done. But Lord, you've humbled us all the way to recognize who we are before you and our need for your grace, that you would die in our place receiving the just punishment of the Father in our place so that we might never know what you went through. But we would only know the hope of resurrection. And so Lord, we aren't afraid. Lord, embolden us to be sufferers in this world Because we'll never suffer what you suffered. You drank that cup. But what you have prepared for us is good work. It's good work that looks like your work. But it's good work that's filled up with the fullness and effectiveness of what you have done. So we can walk in it. And know that resurrection is the end. Eternal life is what is secure. Reconciliation with our God. Entrance into a kingdom, people. Lord, I pray that you would do this in the midst of your church. I hope that you would, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds to give us thoughts and wisdom of what this looks like in our homes and in our workplaces, among our friendships, that we would take the position of a servant and a slave of all, all the places you place us. How radically different than the way we have oriented our lives. Lord, I pray for your miraculous work among this people Work this among us. By your grace, give us yourself and your way. We pray this in Jesus' name, our great master's name. Amen.